Lil Kostakis. Will, you're an acclaimed and award-winning author of books for young adults, including the first third, the Sidekicks and the Monument series. And I understand that you've worked as a writer your whole career and as someone who's jumped around a lot in jobs, I find that really interesting and I wondered how you might introduce yourself. <laughs> Deluded. <laughs> Look, it's writing was something I always did like you know it's the same origin story we've heard a thousand times before some poor teacher looked at my work when I was in year two and was like Will you should be a writer and I was like yes I'm going to make significant life decisions now um and I sort of kept chasing it so much so that I was sending books out to publishers uh when I was 12 and then kept getting rejection letters. And by the time I turned 14 or 15, I was like, oh, I'm getting too old for this. And I was disappointed when I got a book deal at 17. So that shows you how warped my perception was. But look, you know, yes, I got a book deal when I was 17, still in high school, but I still, you know, the publisher was a bit hesitant about getting me to sign my own book deal. So they were trying to scam my mum into signing it. And she was like, that doesn't sound legal. Um, so she was like, look, William, I will sign this so long as you go to uni and um, pick a backup career. And so I studied journalism, which is great. The only other career that's also in the toilet. <laughs> so yeah, while I am a full-time writer and have been a full-time writer, while I've been a writer, I've also been working at Macca's, working as a waiter at the SCG, working as a bartender, and now I'm a full-time writer, which is writing a bit of the time and speaking a lot of the time. Yeah, oh, I, personally, I feel a little bit uh, relieved that I'm not the only one with my backup career. It's, it's so important to have that backup as well, because things that I learned as a journalist, things that I experienced at Mac those are things that inform the way that I write people, the way that I write characters, the way that I write life. I was thinking about the way your first novels sit in that contemporary real world space, but mm -hmm. moving into monuments, uh, you've started like a fantasy adventure sort of departure. And I was wondering, like, you've those books have retained the that beautiful pathos and humour and voice that you've established in your previous novels. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to know how, a bit, how that came about. Um, and how you approach the new genre? Well, uh, it all came about um, by me traumatising myself by writing The Sidekicks, which was uh, my closest friend passed away when I was in high school and he was my big supporter of my writing who wasn't a teacher or a parent. And so I knew one day I would mine that experience for a story, but I told myself, no, I'm not a good enough writer yet. I'm not a good enough writer yet like the first third had this amazing reception. It was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award, but I still told myself, no, I'm not a good enough writer yet. You know, my friend was my big support. I want to make sure the book I write for him was perfect. And then I visited his house to visit his mom, closed the fridge door. His photo was on the fridge. And I looked at him for the first time in ages and was like, oh, I've forgotten what you look like. And I realized if I didn't write a story about him then, or at least inspired by our friendship, um, I was going to forget and I wasn't going to be able to mine that experience. And so I committed myself, you know, whether I was ready for it or not, my next book would be about grief. So ben got me into reading Discworld novels. And so when he died, I 
read all the Discworld novels again. And even though he wasn't there with me, he was. I was reading those books alongside him and I picked all those parts, you know, of our personalities I saw were on the page and we just sort of absorbed them from Pratchett as we read. And so he was still there with me. And so when I was at that point after writing the sidekicks, see, look at me going back to the question 20 minutes later. <laughs> after I'd written the sidekicks, I was like, I'm not just going to dive back into Pratchett. I'm going to write that fantasy story that I always dreamt of writing. That one that I imagined when I had my head pressed against the glass of a Sydney train and, you know, saw the sprawling Sydney city and I thought, what if there was a dragon flying over there or, you know, going on a quest, just something. I love the clash of the urban and the fantastical. And the big thing was, as a kid, I loved to write that Tolkien-esque stuff. Like that was very high fantasy. But as I've gotten older and I've realised my taste is in the clash of the real with a pinch of the fantastical. And so I always say that Monuments is a fantasy novel set in a contemporary world. And the sequel is a contemporary novel set in a fantasy world. And it was sort of me wanting to let out those desires to write those stories that I'd had since I was a kid, but also giving myself in the background time to grieve, heal and move on from writing the sidekicks. And I know that you do a lot of school visits. And so I wonder if um, getting to talk to students and your readers and that teen readership about your books. That's a huge part of it. And it's what's been missing from the past two years of our lives where, you know, yeah, we can talk to people virtually. It's not the same. It's bouncing off kids. And I always thought the most mortifying thing would be a kid telling me they didn't like my book. But those are the most freeing, most liberating conversations. And they're the most fun as well, because it's like a kid isn't saying, oh, this book is crap because it's poorly written. They're like, oh, no, I didn't like that character. And I felt something visceral about it. And, you know, those conversations, they mean so much more than awards and recognition. And like take monuments, for instance, I wanted to make sure that I centered queerness in that narrative, but I purposely was like, I'm not writing a coming out story, you know, early on in the process. Cause one of the characters he's, he's going through a friend divorce and the publisher was like, Oh, have you considered maybe that's because he came out to his friend? And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm going to write. And the really interesting thing was kids loved, especially queer kids, but all kids loved seeing queer characters just getting to go on an adventure, have fun, you know, telling a story that's informed by their queerness, but not centered on the trauma of it. And the disconnect between adults that read that book and teenagers that did, it was my first sort of, well, I love the sidekicks. It is me disappearing up my own ass a little bit. And I think there was a lot in there for adults to enjoy. Right. But with monuments, I was like, Oh, like, I want to write a book that is squarely aimed at the teenagers that I'm meeting at schools every day, you know, that is capturing their voice, their conversations, their concerns, their passions. And by doing that, I had kids that really, really embraced it. But I had librarians who would come up to me and go, oh, Will, I really wish Connor struggled with his sexuality more in the book. And I'd be like, 
okay, you really wish that. Let's unpack that. Okay, is that is that the reality of the teen queer experience in Australian cities at the moment? Not really. I think we need to move past this idea that just showing trauma and pain is useful. Like, I don't know if it is. It's just, it's just that disconnect. And that's why it's been, it's always really great to actually talk to teenagers and get their opinion on things that often doesn't come through in reviews that doesn't come through in award shortlists that doesn't not to say that award shortlists don't you know recognize truly amazing books like they do what you were saying about writing monuments mm-hmm. I, I get a sense of um writing for joy mm-hmm. and do you think that writing for that audience is making you want to write in a different way or approach your books a different way? It's, I approach that series in that way. And so, but there's that sort of imperative of, I say I'm a full-time writer. I can't write another book like Monuments. People will dismiss it if it doesn't have trauma porn across its pages. It's like, I cannot like Monuments and Rebel Gods, I'm incredibly proud of that series. You know, writing Rebel Gods got me through lockdown last year. But, you know, Rebel Gods is my worst performing book. And so you're saying you can't write those books from a monetary yes, professional? Yes, 100%. My next book is going to be, you know, what people want from me. Like I had a comment on Twitter last week that was, you know, I did my little joke where I was like, ah, oh, two years since my flop era started, <laughs> Monuments. And the response was, Will, I love all your books up until Monuments. I can't, I can't, you know, share that in my library. And there's this expectation of what a Will Kostakis novel is, even though I wrote three YA novels before Monuments, which is not really enough to build a trend. And as you mentioned, there was still, you know, my voice, the humour, the, the focus on characters, all that stuff that makes a Wilkes Darkest book. Like, I thought Monuments was that almost to a fault with the sprinkling of other stuff in there. And so my next book, as much as I love it, I'm working on the second draft. It's a YA novel that is palatable to adults because I know that I can sell it to adults. And that's really sad. But I do know that, you know, that one can pay the bills. I can keep Monuments and Rebel Gods in print. Like once I'm touring schools again, I will be throwing that book at anyone who will listen. And it will slowly but surely build an audience. But it's too risky doing that again. So I'm just really mindful of that. And, you know, those financial sort of decisions, you know, I think they weigh on me more heavily now that I'm, you know, in my early 30s and looking to one day own a house, have a family. It's, I'm I'm selfish being like, I'm pursuing my dream. I'm writing. I need to be smart about writing, if that makes sense. And that doesn't mean that my next book is cynical. It's something that I really feel. And it was, I wrote Monuments and Rebel Gods to build up the courage to write something real and war again. Well, not that Monuments wasn't real, but to write something that is more obviously here is a lot of pain, devour it and laugh while you do it. Um, so that's, wow, what a sales pitch. <laughs> I, I don't think we talk about this enough. Like talking about the industry, when we're talking with each other, I, I'm so grateful to you for being really open about this is, what life this is as a writer. This is week 11 of lockdown. Is. It's just like, hey. 
<laughs> but it, I'm having the same conversations with myself. I just spent yeah. a month um, writing full-time on my May Gibbs Fellowship and half of that time I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know how to do it. Look, at the end of the day, look, it's obviously you hear more negative feedback and you see more negative things, you know, far clearer than you hear the positive stuff, right? If that makes sense. So I sit here and I'll, I'll talk about how people, you know, misinterpreted what Monuments was and didn't see that the DNA of a Wilkes Starkus novel was coursing through it. But you said exactly that. So recently yeah. you launched an online book festival or book week. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, it was this weird thing where we went into lockdown and I saw book week approaching and I'm like, oh, no one's really doing anything. And we have a lot of our industry in Australia. There are lots of speakers agencies and lots of ways to connect sort of, you know, authors with schools. And yet there was radio silence with this oncoming book week and there was this huge vacuum and everyone was like, oh, maybe book week will be on, maybe we won't be locked down. And I saw just the cities topple one after the other. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is not gonna go well. And so I saw an opportunity where so much of being a touring author is seeing the disparity between the haves and the have nots. And, you know, the way that I make, you know, when I am, out on the road touring, the way that I make that sort of feasible is I will go to the fancy school, charge them my rate, and then go to the smaller public school across the road and give them a freebie or a reduced rate. And slowly, because, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to one of those schools that had a literature festival and could invite 12 authors in every two years. And that's, that's an experience that was formative for me. And even the kids I know who weren't big writers, who didn't dream of being an author, they still remembered those days. And I'm a big believer in those experiences being open to all teenagers, no matter where they were. And so I was like, okay, looks like there are going to be authors in at least two cities who are locked down during book week. Why don't we all just, you know, record something? We'll do a live stream, maybe two, and then a couple of short videos, really easy, light work. And just to get it out there and price it in a way that, any school could have this opportunity. And we were really overwhelmed with the response. We had over 20 schools and then a handful that were then gifted free subscriptions. You know, we are three weeks out from book week and schools are now incorporating the lessons that we devise. And not only is it a great way for teenagers to meet authors, but it's a way for authors to get their books into classrooms when this opportunity has really been robbed from us in the past two years. It's our way of getting them into a classroom and connecting them with teenagers who are 11 weeks into lockdown. They are losing their motivation. And this is just something that we can do that we couldn't have done had the pandemic not been happening. So it's just a nice little thing to do. That's really special. And are schools still able to sign up if they want to? Yes, they're still, it's still available until, we're thinking until the end of the year, but we've had some schools approach us to maybe do a second season next year. Schools can visit my website, wilkastarkus.com. Individuals can also purchase the workshops and live stream recordings as well. We've talked a bit about the way you find inspiration, sort of using a little bit of your own history mm -hmm. or trauma or... And do you think that 
the over the last couple of difficult years, the way that you found inspiration has changed? A hundred percent. Well, I'm a, I never thought of myself as a people person, but now I'm like, oh yeah, no, I like absorb, you know, energy of people. It's, you know, whether it's, you know, speaking to a room full of teenagers, cracking jokes, learning their new words for things, like those little organic, just playful way that Australian teenagers are working with language. Like that's the stuff that you get and that inspires stories. Um, and hearing their feedback about the stories that they like, the stories that capture them, that inform my creative process. Like sometimes you'll go visit a school and you'll come home completely exhausted and be like, I hate children. Um, but some days you will go speak for five hours, come home and be like, I want to stay up all night and write stories for those teenagers. And so I couldn't do that this year, but I'm a living my life to then write kind of person. And I've had to exercise that muscle. Also force myself to read more, which I think is great. I think it's made my writing better. The big thing that I've mourned the loss of is having the downtime. And I know it's really weird to say we don't have downtime now, but it's like, I used to be able to, if I, if I was stuck on a story, I could just put it, or I had demands from my life that I could just, I had to leave it. And, you know, you go to the gym and then, you know, set seven, your brain figures out that conflict that you'd been sort of wrestling with. I haven't had that away time. So I have to sort of manufacture it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to move my ironing board desk to the other side of the room and not think about the writing. Well, I just finished um, Tori Peters' Detransition Baby, which I mm -hmm. really enjoyed. What have you been reading? I am on the last like 50 pages of Station Eleven. Have you heard of it? I have. I have never read it. <laughs> Very, look, not the right book to be reading in a pandemic, but also the right book to be reading in a pandemic. It's eerily shocking how much, like it's, it's about the collapse of society after a flu-like virus. So obviously it's this to the nth degree, but there are little bits, little lines where I'm like, you completely captured this moment perfectly. Thanks so much, Will, for taking time to chat with me today. And um, I also wanted to mention that this episode is being supported by The Little Book Room, the oldest children's bookshop in Australia and maybe even the world. And you can find Lisa and her team at their brand new shop front in Fitzroy North, which is in Melbourne's inner north. And if you follow the link in the description of this video, you can buy all of Will's books, especially Monuments and Rebel Gods, of course, and have a virtual visit in this beautiful shop. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. And I cannot wait to visit the Little Book Room's new shop once you let me back into the state. <laughs> This is such an amazing conversation, I think. You say, I don't, why are you saying that? Did you expect it to be terrible? <laughs>